You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 28, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Advent is a, a season in the calendar of the church that is made up of the four Sundays, really, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And historically, the thematic arc for the season of Advent is that of a longing, that of awaiting, that of anticipating. And you see, historically, it looks back, in a sense, to the space between in which God's people live, the life between the promise of God to send his Redeemer and the fulfillment of that promise in the birth of his Son that we celebrate at Christmas. For generations, God's people longed with tremendous anticipation and desire the coming of the promised Messiah. And now you and I, on on this side of Jesus' arrival, his life, his death, his resurrection, on this side of the cross, we too, as God's people, still live in a space between, a a space between what God has begun and done already in grace through the person and work of Jesus and that which he has yet to do that will happen when he returns. The space between the already of what we've experienced of God's grace in Christ and the not yet of what is to come, what will be fulfilled fully and finally when Jesus returns. Until then, in the space between, we long and we await that which God has promised to fulfill. And in the space between, while we long and await, it is the Holy Spirit himself that continues to bear witness to Jesus and draw people to Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit himself that enables people to even see Jesus that they might trust him and love him. It's the very spirit of God that enables us to see Jesus and desire him in such a way that we would even want to become his disciple or apprentice. It's this same spirit of God that cultivates in our hearts a desire to be with Jesus that also supernaturally unites us to Jesus himself in such a way that you and I are not only justified, meaning we are seen by God as though we have never sinned, unites us in such a supernatural way that we're not only adopted in the sense that we now call our creator Father, and Jesus, our Savior, as brother, united in such a supernatural way to Jesus that we're not only cleansed of our sin in the sense that nothing in our past imposes any kind of restriction on our fellowship with God now because of his grace through Christ. He unites us so supernaturally to Jesus that now Jesus dwells within us by his spirit, that we, as Paul said, may be increasingly transformed into Jesus's image and likeness in ever-increasing glory, united in such a supernatural way by the spirit of God 
that our person is literally being metamorphosized. This is the picture that Jesus is painting that we've been swimming around in. In John chapter 15, for the last couple of weeks, the divine nature of the Godhead himself flows in and through you by his spirit as you abide in Jesus and he in you, that you would bear much fruit. That the Christ-like reflection being worked in you by his spirit would be seen. This is what the Godhead desires to do in and through you. This is the divine agenda for your life. The divine agenda for you is your fruitfulness, your maturation. Said another way, your sanctification or your holiness. In fact, Paul told the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you be sanctified, transformed, maturing into increasing Christ-likeness. In fact, when he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that the church as the body of Christ is being built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to maturity, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's maturity? The measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that, why? We may no longer be children, immature, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, look, we grow up, we mature in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body, what? Grow. Mature. So that, why? It builds itself up. It matures. It bears fruit. So what does that have to do with Advent? Well, Advent becomes a seasonal and an annual reminder that you and I on this side of the cross live in the space between that we are not what we were by the grace of God, but we are not yet what we will be. We are not yet what we should desire to be. That this process of maturation, this process of increasing fruitfulness, this process of transformation, of sanctification, of holiness, it's an ongoing process. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks to the church and he says, you know, I wish I could talk to you as maturing adults, but spiritually you're still babies, you should be far more mature at this point. Advent is a reminder for us every year that there's still some, some spiritual adulting that we have to do. A few weeks ago, as we were going through the, the I am statements of Jesus, we came to the statement in John chapter 10, verse 10, and Jesus said, I came. 
The reason for which I came, I took on flesh, was born of a virgin, lived the life of perfect devotion and obedience and delight in God and laid my life down on the cross in your place for your sin. I came that you would have life. Zoe, a quality of life. Life and have it abundantly. Advent becomes for us a regular rhythm and reminder of the story that we're a part of and the longing, the desire that's meant to mark our heart, that's meant to be the deepest desire, the agenda of God for us and our life. And so Advent becomes an annual opportunity for us to ask and answer the question, is this really what I want? Is God's agenda for me, my maturation, my fruitfulness, my transformation, is that my deepest desire? The fullness of life for which Jesus came, that which I live in as I abide in him and him in me, is that what I really want? Advent becomes the opportunity for us to face what it is our our heart really desires. And if we're really honest, that's probably something we often overlook. Much like the feasts and the festivals that God gave his people in the Old Testament that were regular, annual, rhythmic reminders of who he is and who they are, their need for him, his grace towards them, his steadfastness and his love for them, Advent becomes this kind of regular, rhythmic instrument of God's grace in our life. It's an opportunity for our hearts to be reshaped and reformed which is essential because what we desire, what we long for, that which has captured our heart at the deepest level, I do think is the root of the crisis that is at the heart of the church. I do think the church is facing a crisis and at the heart of it is what it is we really want. It's the crisis at the heart of the church and I'll get to it in a minute. I want to argue it's a crisis in the heart of God's people. And this is the thing that's probably, as I've been trying to put my finger on it for the last few years, that's been nagging at me about my own life and about the life of God's people. And so if you were with us last week, you know I began to kind of walk us through this journey that God has been taking me on and and subsequently taking you on as you continue to come along. Um, But this morning is going to be part two. So if there's two parts to this journey, this, this morning is part two. And If you weren't with us last week, I don't have time to go and summarize the whole thing. I'll try to do a brief bit of justice to it. But if you're interested, you can go back and listen for context. But I began to wrestle with the questions and ask the questions, have have we as a people, as a church, gotten too easily satisfied with culturally determined measures of spiritual health? Have our ideas of what it is to be healthy really just become self-indulgent ideas? I began to wrestle with whether or not I, as a pastor, had lost the nerve to ask the most essential questions, which are simply this, what kind of people are we becoming? Forget how many people are here and what that says about things, what kind of people are we becoming? You know, it was George Orwell who said, we have now sunk to the depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. And here's the thing about the obvious. Sometimes the obvious is the most difficult thing to see. 
And so last week, we stepped back to try to reconsider what the essential call to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus really meant, to try to see the obvious that maybe we've overlooked. We tried to put being a disciple of Jesus back into its cultural context and try to understand what that is and and what it would mean to be his disciple and better yet, what it would mean to be his apprentice and in understanding how that was lived and understood in his day, we began to see what that would mean if we were going to claim the same thing for us in our day. An apprentice of Jesus had a life that was oriented around four primary goals. Their life was literally shaped intentionally and systematically around these goals, the chief of which was to be with their rabbi. That was it, to be with him. Because as they were with him, they would begin to learn from him. The more they were with him, the more they could become like him. And over time, as they were with him and becoming like him, the day would come where they could go and do as he did, reflect his likeness and teaching in their own life. Be with him. Learn from him. Become like him. Is this what we mean when we say that we're disciples of Jesus? I mean, have any of us I'm sure some of us have, and praise God, but have, how many of us have in any way, intentionally or even systematically begun to shape our lives, the way we live, the way we order our time, anything about how we operate around the single primary intention of being with Jesus? Are we driven by abiding in him? without which, when it comes to our transformation and maturation, Jesus said in John 15, we can do nothing. Is this what we want? At the deepest level of our heart, do we really want to be with and keep company with Jesus? To become like him. To bear the fruit of Christ's likeness. Is that the operating agenda that we have in our hearts for our lives? And so my take on it, for those that weren't here, was that this is the issue at the heart of the the impotence of the modern church. We have fashioned the idea of being a disciple of Jesus into our own cultural matrix. We've made being a disciple of Jesus more like a process or a program of leadership development and mentorship and less about an orienting lifestyle of being with him. And not, and this is not, let me say it this way, just the issue that is at the heart of the crisis that I honestly think the contemporary church faces. What I want to get after this morning is that it's ultimately and chiefly an issue of the heart of God's people. And sometimes, like Orwell said, the obvious is the hardest thing to see. So some of you have a book on your bookshelves. It was written by a philosopher, and you probably, I don't have any philosophy books. You you probably have this one. It was written by a philosopher named James K.A. Smith. He's a foremost Augustinian scholar. And in this popular level book, he summarized a, a tremendous theme of 
Augustinian philosophy, which is really a summary of an essential teaching of Jesus and Paul. And the title of this book, which you probably have, and you may have read a chapter or two of, is You Are What You Love. And in that book, James Smith began to restate the obvious, that which you and I have often overlooked. And that's simply this, that God made us. And the nature and the form in which he made us, he made us to long for him, to crave life with him, to desire the quality of life, the zoe life, the fullness of life, the abundance of life that Jesus has been talking about in all these statements that's only found in him. And so as he began to unpack the obvious that so much of us begin to overlook that I think is the crisis that is dwelling in our hearts, I will try to summarize it the best I can for us. If we are what we love, what we crave, and what we desire, then the fundamental question in our apprenticeship to Jesus is, what is it that we want? What is it we're looking for? What is it we're seeking? It's interesting, if you go back at some point this week, if you, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 38, if you have a red letter in New Testament, the words of Jesus are in red, the first red letters you see in John's Gospel are in chapter 1, verse 38, and they're actually a question that Jesus asks a handful of John the Baptist's disciples. They had heard John declare, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus walks by, and they begin to follow Jesus. And he turns and he looks at him, and here's his first words that John records. What are you seeking? What do you want? What is it you're looking for? It's the first question he asks. It's the essential question at the heart of being a follower of Jesus. What do you love? What are you wanting? What are you seeking? And if you're willing to look, you may find that it's not what you think. James Smith's book does an excellent job of giving us a basic lesson in biblical cardiology and, and biblical heart study. His book unpacks the theme that's woven throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that our wants and our loves, our desires and our cravings are at the core of who we are. All of these things flow out of our heart. And our heart, according to the Bible, is not talking about the, the biological organ that pumps the blood in through our bodies and, and, and keeps us alive in this sense. It's at the heart, the literal center of our cardiovascular system. It's talking about the heart as the center of our entire being, the seat of our emotions, the seat of our thoughts, the seat of our affections, our desires, our cravings the seat of our wants and our longings that, that give animation and action to our behaviors. The heart, according to the Bible, is the wellspring of our life. Jesus would talk about this throughout his teachings. In Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, right? It's out of the heart. The mouth speaks and the body acts. 
That's why the writer would say in Proverbs chapter 4, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, keep your heart with all vigilance, some of your translations will say, for from it flow springs of life. Right? If we are what we love and we are what we crave, if we're not essentially what we know and what we think and what we believe, then apprenticeship to Jesus is about more than what you know. It's essentially about what you hunger and thirst for. Apprenticeship to Jesus is more about what's going on in your heart. That's why you can hear something on a morning like this or hear something on a podcast from another preacher you listen to or read something in a book and, and feel inspired, feel enlightened, sense that desire to be different and in a matter of 30 seconds get a text from someone else and be boiling over with anger or anxiety. And what it was you were so inspired by is literally gone. It's because transformation, becoming more like Christ, maturation in the spiritual sense isn't about information. It's not about what you know primarily. You see, we all know it from our lives. Knowing is not the same thing as doing, and it's certainly not the same thing as wanting to. And so we all kind of live with this gap between what we know, what we do, and what we want to do. And the reality is what your heart loves, what your heart craves, is way more influential in how you live than what you know. And so for an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, the image you kind of have to get is that the center of mass, the center of gravity, it's not your head. It's actually your heart. Right? Our hearts, biblically speaking, are like a compass, right? A compass is oriented towards a true magnetic north. A compass guides your steps and guides your way when you're trying to get from one place to another and you don't really know which way to go. You follow that compass as it's oriented in the direction in which you're trying to go. Your heart is like a compass. What it is you love, what it is you crave, what it is you long for, the vision of the fullness of life, the vision of Zoe life that has captured your heart, has grabbed a hold of you, that is giving orientation to your heart. That is your true magnetic north. And your life will be lived in that direction. And so it's critical that you and I be willing to ask the question, what version of the fullness of life is orienting our heart? Because whatever it is, our lives are going to be lived towards it in that direction. And here's the thing. It's not going to be primarily because someone convinced you of it with information or an argument. It's become the magnetic north of your heart because you've been captured by it. You've been captivated by a vision and you want it. You want to go there. And your heart is pulling you through this world by that vision. And and so in his book, 
Smith warns in a way that we understand, in a way that the Bible speaks of over and over again, you may not actually love what you think you love. And that is the crisis of the heart of a disciple of Jesus. You see, you and I are, are being shaped and formed and in ways that we don't just easily see. Our wants, our desires, our longings, our cravings, our heart is being formed in ways that are unseen to us at times. They happen like under the hood of the car, kind of. Like our heart's under the hood. It's happening down there. And it happens as you and I participate in a whole host of everyday rhythms and habits of life as we take in and are immersed by rival stories of a different kingdom and life in that kingdom. And you and I have to start by coming to the awareness of the reality that these habits, these practices, these rhythms, and these stories, they're not neutral in themselves. They themselves are doing something to us. They're forming us. They're shaping us. They're affecting our hearts and our loves. And the crisis at the heart of a follower of Jesus today is that we live unaware of these rival gospels that are orienting our heart, that are capturing our heart. I'll give you a couple examples, uh, habits and stories, right? This phone, I'm not going to talk about social, I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about the actual hardware itself. The engineers and the creators of this technology are so ridiculously smart. They know that it's at the deepest level of your heart that your life is captivated. And so you grab this thing and you take it to yourself and you actually begin to touch it. And as you begin to touch it and interact with it, it begins to affect you. All of a sudden, at the the very touch of my finger, what I want and what I think I need comes right to me in that very moment. The person whose attention I want, I can go and try to get right then and right there the way I want it, when I want it, just by going to it. And so just by picking this thing up, throughout the day, routinely, over and over again, touching it and interacting with it. It is shaping my understanding of the life that I live. The the fullness of life and the life my heart craves is one at which I'm at the center of. I get what I want when I want it. The vision of life that it's routinely habituating in my heart is one where I never have to be bored. I get what I want when I want, including you. And you better respond the way I want when I want. Just the act of interacting with this hardware, with this thing, is the shaping of the practice of an egocentric view of the world. One at which I'm the center. Not a theocentric view of the world, but an ego centric view of the world. And guess what? No one showed up with an argument to convince me towards it. It's just a regular practice and habit that continues to story that desire in my heart. I'll give you another one. How about the very season that we're in, right? Forget even using Advent in a sense to begin to see and ask the questions 
of what it is our heart truly desires. Let's just put it in the cultural context of Christmas. This is the season we enter into when we spend untold numbers of hours trying to purchase for people and for some of us ourselves things that we think will make ourselves and others happy, produce joy. Now, here's the thing. Amazon and Short Pump and Stony Point, they don't care what you think. They only care about what you want and that you want, that you become someone that thinks that the satisfaction of certain wants will make you or someone else happy. And so it's just the rhythmic immersion into the habit and the practice of the season that begins to tell the story to our hearts of the gospel of the kingdom of consumerism. Get it and I'll be happy. Get it and I'll have joy. Get it and they'll be happy. Get it and they'll like me. And no one showed up at your door, knocked on it with a pamphlet and said, have you ever heard of the gospel of consumerism? No one ever convinced you with an argument that that was the way to live and to have the fullness of life. You just practice your way into it. What about stories? I'm, just, I'm not watching the clock. What about stories? You know, we live in a world that is immersed with the story of a rival kingdom, a, a secular kingdom, a kingdom in which there says there is no God. The idea of a God was a myth from a pre-scientific day. We've got telescopes now. We don't need to have those kinds of things. That you and I, we're just animals that are just the random byproducts of time and chance. And since there's no ultimate meaning or purpose in all of this, all of it's just a big cosmic accident, the fullness of life, the abundant life, is just feel as good as you can for as long as you can until you die. And the smartest minds in our world work for the most effective advertising companies telling you this story over and over and over again. And it's a story of a rival kingdom and the vision of life in that kingdom. And so James Smith would write, you and I can have all the right convictions of who we want to be, and yet because our loves, our desires, our cravings are being shaped, we don't see how our heart is being miscalibrated, how it's being bent towards a rival kingdom. And so our, our hearts and our loves and our cravings and our desires, our image, our idea, our vision of the fullness of life, the life abundant is always being formed. It's always being shaped. And most often that forming and shaping is happening under the surface. And so what I've tried to at least articulate in the last couple of weeks is that the modern church of which we are a part of is facing a crisis and at the heart of that crisis is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be Jesus' disciple, what it means to be his apprentice. It is a reorienting of the way of life that we live. But when we see this misunderstanding, when we come to terms with it, we see that it exposes a deeper crisis within our own hearts. What is it that we really long for? What is it we really want? What is it we really crave and desire? 
Are we willing to take a look and see that maybe what we want isn't Jesus and his vision of the fullness of life, his kingdom? Maybe that's not the true magnetic north of our heart. If that's the case, then it stands to reason that what we need, what is most essential right now, is that our hearts be recalibrated. This is the good news. This is the very thing that God in his grace wants to do in us and for us. In fact, rightly understood, the life of apprenticing to Jesus is in itself a life of recalibration. It is a life of counterformation. It is a life of the reformation of the heart at its deepest desires of longing and craving. This reformation and recalibration begins to happen as we intentionally begin to order our life around being with Jesus, that we may become like him in order to live as his reflections in the world in which he has placed us. Friends, being his disciple is the path towards being reformed, recalibrated to what we were made for, for him, to enjoy him, to become like him, for his joys and delights to become our joys and delights. Jesus said that life, the fullness of life is found in him. And it's lived, it's a lived experience for us as we abide in him, becoming increasingly like him. As we do, he's doing for us what nothing we could ever imagine will. He's making us more human. He's the most fully human person who ever lived. And as we abide in him and he in us, as we orient our life around being with him as his apprentice, he by his spirit is changing us from the inside out, making us more like him, more human, more who we were made to be. You see, apprenticing to Jesus that is driven by abiding with him, desiring to be with him, This is God's chief way by his spirit to recalibrate our hearts to Jesus, our true north. And so the question that's going to come, and it came last week and it'll come now, and watching my clock, I've got a little bit of time to answer, is simply this. So if that's the case, tell me how to abide. Just tell me how. What do I do? What's the program? What's the system? What's the step? How do I do it? But here's the thing. The first thing that has to happen is you have to see and own the problem. You have to see and own the crisis. What is it your heart really desires? But I won't leave you. I'll begin to answer the question, and we'll spend weeks working this question out. But how do we abide? You and I, as disciples of Jesus, we abide as we continue to practice, as we continue to pattern as we continue to live our lives in what the early church would call the ways of Jesus. You know, the early church was actually called the way. That's what they were known by. 
You see, an apprentice, a, a disciple of a rabbi, remember from last week, his, his chief intention was to be with his rabbi that he might become like him, take on his manner of being, speak like him, think like him, teach like him, live like him, pattern his day, pattern his life after the ways in which his rabbi lived. This is essentially what it is to abide. It's to practice the habits and the rhythms of the ways of Jesus into our hearts and into our lives. It's to intentionally seek to keep company with Jesus, that we could be with him in order to become like him. And for those who have been around the church for any period of time, your antenna may be going up, and you understand that what I'm getting after generally falls under the theological rubric of the spiritual disciplines. I, I like the language. I like the term. I don't like the language and don't like the term for some reasons. I, I like it and love it for other reasons, but I really enjoy thinking about the practices and the habits and the rhythms of the way that Jesus lived. Because here's the thing. You and I, there's no switch inside of our hearts that we can flip that will all of a sudden make our hearts long for and want and desire what Jesus wants. But we can, as we abide, we can begin to recalibrate and reform and reshape and curate and reorient the loves of our heart, to recalibrate the compass of our hearts to Jesus. This is the desire of his disciples. And New habits, new rhythms, new practices, the orientation of how we live around being with him with these new rhythms and practices and habits play a key role in becoming like him. And so we're going to spend time in the coming weeks on some of these rhythms and habits, and we'll take a break maybe at the start of the year, and then we'll come back to it again. But this morning, with the time that's left, whatever time is left, I just want to put them in their right context. Because I think the church of which we are a part of, the modern Western evangelical church, has kind of jumped the track in understanding these things, gone off the, the rails a bit, and it's why of all the classes that we've ever offered in Equip, a, a class on the habits of grace is the most canceled. I kid you not, 270 plus individuals have taken over 14 different Equip classes over the time in which we've had them, and we've canceled that one four times. Partly because we don't understand it in its right context. And so that's all I, I want to do with our time is try to put it in its right context. And the first kind of big E on the I chart that I want us to understand is that these habits, these rhythms, these practices, these disciplines, the ways of Jesus, they're not primarily habits or practices of expressionism. What I mean by that is that they're not primarily practices or habits by which we express our devotion. I think that's where we've gone off the track in the last few decades, and maybe even more than a few decades, maybe last century in the Western church. You see, when you and I see these habits and these rhythms and these practices primarily as ways we express our devotion to Jesus, we end up doing them in order to prove something to God. They end up for our A-type performers in here becoming ways by which we prove ourselves. 
right? As opposed to someone else, whoever it is in your mind, your heart begins to recalibrate and go, I, I read the Bible more than this person. I prayed more than this person. I fasted more than this person. I found times of solitude better than this person. I've gathered more often with God's people than this person. Therefore, I deserve whatever from God or the church. They're not primarily expressions of our sincere devotion to God. The habits of the Christian life, the ways and rhythms of Jesus, they're they're spirit-empowered instruments of grace. They shape and form us. They shape and form our loves, our longings. They're spirit-infused instruments of grace that recalibrate our hearts. They're counterforming habits and rhythms of grace. I've tried to come up with as, as many different ways as I can to say it, but in these things, God himself is, is meeting us to shape us into the kind of people who look like his son. They're not primarily expressions of our sincere devotion to him. Which means when you open up God's word and you read God's word, you're never just reading the Bible to read the Bible. You're keeping company with Jesus. By his spirit, you are abiding in him. And it's shaping you. It's forming you. It's recalibrating you at the deepest level. You're never just coming to a worship service with God's people to express your primary devotion and allegiance to God. No, you're responding to God's call for you to come. And as you're here in the rhythm and the habits of our life together in a time like this, he's shaping you. He's the primary actor. He's recalibrating and reforming the longings and desires of your heart. His vision for life in his kingdom and the fullness and the abundance of life that's found in his son. The habits and the practices and the rhythms and the ways of of Jesus are, are instruments that just create time and space for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us, to change us. As one writer said, they're just instruments of grace that get the vision of the gospel and the grace of God into our bones. It gets into us that it begins to shape us. As you practice the ways of Jesus, these habits of grace, these new rhythms to have your heart recalibrated, you're literally, and I'll try to give you as many pictures as I can to make the penny drop, you're If you're a sailor, you're setting your sails, you're lifting your sails, you're hoisting your sails so that you can harness the wind of God's spirit. You're putting yourself in the way of God's grace and spirit to change you. You're leaning into the spirit's means to graciously recalibrate the compass of your heart to Jesus, your true north. You're striking the tuning fork of grace that regularly brings your heart into tune with Jesus and his kingdom and his agenda for your life. As one writer said, the way that you place yourself in the path of God's grace, that you might be covered in the dust of your rabbi. We could add that to it. 
Another said they're spirit-informed practices that will reform and retrain your loves. Dallas Willard, who's been so influential in this in my life, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, and I love that that's the title. It's not the spiritual disciplines, it's the spirit of the disciplines. It's the spirit of God and the practices. Practices, rhythms, habits charged by the very presence of God's spirit. Dave Mathis, who wrote one of my favorite books on this, he calls them habits of grace because they are habits by which the grace of God gets deep into our bones and retrains our hearts. The rhythms of abiding and being with Jesus by his spirit. They're habits and patterns in which God meets us where we are as created beings that he made to love and to long and to crave. And he meets us with these practices that shape and form our loves. Here's the other thing. They're not just expressionism. The other thing, if we've jumped the tracks, it's a misunderstanding of our role in the process. More often than not, we view this maturation process into Christ's likeness in a very organic and natural way. It'll just kind of happen along the way, but this process requires our effort. The, the Spirit of God, sure, it can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. Yes and amen. But when we talk about the Spirit forming us and maturing us as a church, as a people historically, we tend to celebrate the big and the miraculous. When the reality of it is, the Spirit of God does the vast majority of his work in us through the ordinary habits and rhythm of grace. And those habits and rhythms and patterns require discipline on our part. They require patterning on our part. Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises, some of your translations will say self-control, some of your translations will say discipline. Every athlete exercises discipline in all things. Why? Why do they exercise discipline? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But you and I are running a race for imperishable rewards. The fullness of life in Christ. So Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't live aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline. I habituate. I pattern my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Paul understood these athletic metaphors. They were very much a part of his wheelhouse. Everyone understood the games in those days. And what Paul understood, and he he says often when he speaks of practice, is that discipline, habit, rhythm plays a role in following Jesus. In fact, grammatically, you can break the word disciple down into disciplined one. And, And we tend to hear the word discipline and we tend to think negative, corrective, not formative. But it's formative. And Jesus reminds us in John 15, abiding, habit, rhythm, patterning in the ways of Jesus is our part in the process of transformation. And the Spirit of God works in and through us. But you and I have agency in this whole thing. 
This is where we talked a little bit last week and why there's so much disappointment and so many disgruntled and bitter people in the church because they wake up and realize they haven't progressed in maturity in the way they thought they were supposed to and maybe even at some level desired to and they look back at the church and said, you never did this. We have agency. We have a level of responsibility in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's to abide in him. It's to adopt and to live into the patterns and habits and rhythms and the ways of Jesus. In every other part of our life, we understand the need for and we value this kind of rhythm and habit and discipline and routine. Musicians will play endless hours of scales throughout their lifetime. Golfers will practice their swing a million times. Soccer players will juggle a ball and dribble a ball because we understand that it's in those things that we are enabled to become the person that we want to be. We become the musician that can actually begin to actually play jazz. A a golfer who doesn't slice the ball off the tee every single time. A soccer player who doesn't lose control of the ball every time it comes around him. We understand this in every part of our life, but somehow we've grown an allergy to it when it comes to following Jesus. We know that these are the ways that we can become the person that we want to be as the Spirit of God does its work in and through us. But we don't think about our apprenticeship to Jesus like this. You might have the book on your shelf, Richard Foster. He he wrote a book about 30-something years ago. It began this conversation in the church, and then it got shelved. And after a decade of of teaching and and writing and four versions of his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Foster said that most people think that they change simply by trying harder and harder and not learning how to train well. See, the habits of grace for many of us, when we don't see them in their right context, we we begin to think that they are our means at trying really hard. When in reality, they are the means of grace that God gives us in which we train our hearts and train our loves. Normally, if we're really honest, when we think about maturing in Christ-likeness and growing in spiritual maturity, we try to study our way into it. But training is presenting ourselves before God day by day in the practices and rhythms and habits and disciplines of his grace. We understand these kinds of habits as formative in every other part of our life. Why don't we understand them this way when it comes to being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ? We know it's true in the natural world. It's just as true in the spiritual world. These rhythms and habits and practices, as one writer said, are the habituations of the spirit It's where the transformative grace of God gets into us and we're shaped by them. And I want you to hear me. For some of you, you're still going to wrestle with this. The habits of grace, what we're going to talk about, these rhythms and these practices, in no way, shape, form, or fashion are they a means by which you could ever earn anything from God. Grace is utterly opposed to earning. But grace is not opposed to effort. It is the grace of God, Paul said, that trains us, habits us into godliness. 
Friends, you train as you abide in him, as you present yourself to him, and his spirit graciously forms you. We'll spend some time working through some of these in the weeks to come, but here's the thing. The more we talk about this, the more we talk about these habits, the more we talk about these rhythms, you got to understand the irony in it all. And that's simply this, that following Jesus will ultimately feel more like resting than working. But I hope you get the point of our responsibility. And with it, you're going to have to own the frustration that's going to come. We live in a world of instant gratification, and our maturation, more often than we want to admit, is painfully slow. I think it's another reason why we've discarded the means of God's grace this way. We've just settled with this reality that we're just always going to be the person that we are, and we haven't been willing to stick with him over the long haul. But abiding with Jesus, being with Jesus, keeping company with him as his disciple, Friends, it's not a program. It's not a program we can set up. It's not a workbook that I can give you. Ultimately, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's an orienting life around being with Jesus. It's an orientation of living. It's a life of repetition, of ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view. All of these habits and rhythms and patterns of life in Jesus they ultimately, over time, have a cumulative effect. And the moment, it may not feel, it may not seem like much is happening, but they're shaping you, they're forming you, they're recalibrating you at the deepest level of your longing and your love. And over time, they produce in us what we would never be able to do apart from his grace. And there's no app for it. There's no book apart from his word that encapsulates all of it. But it is his invitation to you. And so let me ask you as we get ready to wrap up and respond this morning, are are you aware of what your heart craves, what it loves? The vision of the kingdom and abundant life, the fullness of life that your heart is oriented towards. We so easily and and even unknowingly and unaware absorb all these rival stories and rival kingdoms and are pulled towards their vision of life. Not because you read a book or, or listened to someone on the radio, but because your heart was captivated. Are you aware of what it is your heart is longing for? As we begin to journey along these rhythms and habits, would you be willing to start by just doing an audit of your heart and life. Taking some time to get away, alone and quiet, however you can. Maybe begin to write out how you spend your day. From when you wake to when you sleep, what is it you spend your time on? How is it that you live? What does your habit and rhythm and routine look like? Would you be willing with a level of humility to look at your phone? It'll tell you how much time are you spending on it and where are you spending it? Same with your computer. How much time are you watching the TV? Would you be willing to ask yourself in all these things, these habits, these patterns, these rhythms, what do you think they're doing to you? Are you someone who watches two to three hours of television and you walk away wondering why you're angry or why you're envious or why you're craving something you don't have, wanting something that isn't yours? 
Would you be willing to do an audit on your heart and your life and, and ask yourself, what am I giving myself to? What's shaping me and forming me? We don't do this just so that we can then get rid of all these things. We do them to be aware of them. And in some sense, begin even to defang the, the grip they have on our heart. Let me close this way. I, I know I didn't do this for the first, but I found this really helpful. There's this old preacher's story. No one knows who originated it, who came from. It's an old preaching story. It's a story of a man who was told by God that a flood was coming and that God would save him. You may have heard the story. I'm not talking about Noah. The waters began to fall and begin to rise, and as they began to rise, a canoe comes by. You heard the story? And people in the canoe say, why don't you get in the canoe? And he says, that's okay. God's going to save me. And the waters continue to fall and they continue to rise and they get so high that he's beginning to get up onto the roof of his house. And as the waters rise, a boat comes by. The people in the boat say, hey, come on, get in. Let's get you to safety. He said, no, I'm okay. God's going to save me. The water keeps falling and keeps rising. It's so much so as at the top of his chimney. It's getting above his eyes. He's getting to that place where you're right below the surface line. And the Coast Guard chopper, chopper comes, drops the basket. Get in. I'm all right. God's going to save me. And it didn't work out well for him, right? So he finds himself standing at the very unbiblical pearly gates. And he looks at God and, and he says, where were you? You said you were going to save me. And God looks at him and says, well, I sent a canoe, I sent a boat, I sent a chopper. What were you wanting? What were you looking for? What were you expecting? Friends, in the life of maturation and spiritual formation and growth in Christ-likeness, we're not looking for the next big best thing. We just need to get into the canoe that God sent. The practicing and the habituating of our heart and life in the ways of Jesus as his apprentice. The next big way has always been the only way. It's the way of him. His habits, his rhythms, his disciplines that do something to us, that shape us, that form us into the people he's called us to be with the longings that we were made for. This is his invitation for all who would receive it. Let me pray for us, and we'll get ready to respond to God's word together this morning. Father, it takes a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts for us to be the people who at the deepest level of our being long for what we were made for. So many distractions, so many stories, so many rival kingdoms of what we are to have and be and live for joy. God, it takes your spirit at work in us to recalibrate our hearts towards you, our true north, to make us want what we were created to want, to long, to keep company with you, to be with you, that we might become like you and reflect you in this world. Lord, please do that work by your spirit of recalibrating us. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.